This is Steve Kim. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hey, welcome everybody. This is kind of new. We're actually looking at each other face to face. If you're listening to this podcast over audio, um, we're actually recording this on Zoom. And I used to joke about how we have the face for podcasting (laughs) and we finally (laughs) revealed our faces in video. And this is actually going to go up on YouTube as well once this is all finished recording. So yeah, more and more. We're going to be posting videos, so you can uh, check that out on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I'm looking at the screen right now, and I see that Andy has moved his office, and he's got shelves and shelves of books on his background. What was that all about? What got you to move the office? Uh, yeah, the thing that led to the office being moved from my upstairs to my downstairs is that uh, my boys have been sleeping in a one-bedroom uh, on a bunk bed, for the last uh, 11 years. And so this was the this was the summer that they each got their own bedroom now and uh, led to us moving moving the, the office downstairs. So yeah, we've uh, we've had to get this room all ready. Now, as you know, that's also part of a, a much bigger move that we've been going through, and that is that uh, Apologetics Canada has now officially moved from Northview. We no longer have uh, our offices at Northview. So that's Northview Community Church. For those of you who are tuning in maybe for the first time, Apologetics Canada has been operating out of a local church in Abbotsford, British Columbia called Northview Community Church. They've been just super supportive of ministry work that we've been doing, and so we were really blessed to be a part of it. Andy was the young adults pastor there for quite a number of years while we were operating out of there. And you have just recently resigned. And yeah, so I was there around eight years, but I didn't, I, I actually told them back in September, they wanted uh, a, quite a bit of notice so that they had time to to get, you know, somebody new into that position, but also to help with the, you know, the transition with regards to Apologetics Canada. So we've been slowly making this migration uh, for the last year. The the Young Adults Ministry has a new uh, pastor. His name's Vin. Great guy. I had the summer to get to work with him and to help him transition into that role, and and that went great. And so uh, Northview continues to do our bookkeeping. They have been uh, wonderful and very helpful. So appreciate Northview. So they're continuing to do our bookkeeping. So for those of you who support Apologetics Canada, uh, you can keep sending your checks to Northview. They're still processing all that. And over the next year, we're in the transition of starting our own nonprofit society. And so that's kind of one of the big things that, that we're stepping into with regards to uh, Apologetics Canada is what is what does the future look like as we as an organization continue to grow and need to put the structure in place to allow this ministry to to continue to help churches across Canada and actually globally. And that was one of the reasons why 
uh, we needed to step out of Northview. Northview has been growing uh, a lot, and so has Apologetics Canada. And the young adults ministry that I was working with had grown substantially. And so it just became too much to try to oversee all of that. And it just became clear to us that God was releasing us from that young adults ministry and really wanting us to invest wholly into Apologetics Canada. Yeah, so as we get deeper into this topic today, basically, we're going to give you a bit of a status update, our listeners and viewers, in terms of where we were and where we're headed. Now, I don't know if you guys noticed, but um, part three of parenting in a technological age was actually our 300th episode. Can you believe this, Andy? We've been doing this for over 300 episodes. It's pretty incredible how long we've been doing this podcast and how many episodes. We've laughed about this and I have to mention it. Whenever people want to start a podcast, uh, I always think in my mind, you know, like think hard before you start that. It's a, it's, it's a big commitment. And, and it was funny because you and I, when we first started the podcast, we would do it off and on. We would have an episode here or there. And then we started hearing from listeners that were getting quite annoyed by that. And they're just like, either do the podcast or don't. Yeah, and preferably do the podcast, but you, <laughs> but you can't keep doing this on and off stuff because you're killing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that that was the key when the podcast. I mean, we certainly had a very humble beginning, right? I still remember with the with the plastic table with this blanket draped over it with this one single microphone in the middle and there was you and me and back then John Morrison right the three of us kind of huddling around it and the sound quality was terrible (laughs) but uh, we started and if I remember correctly too it was like we were in a kid's room too like in the church so it was a bunch of kids stuff around it just was very weird it was this orange weird orange blanket we used yeah very humble beginnings but I think the podcast really started taking off when we started doing it regularly. Um, weekly, we started doing it and we just committed ourselves to it. And as we started doing it regularly, that's when people really started. It was almost like um, not so much an exponential growth, that, but the curve really started with that consistency. So for those of for those of you that are considering starting a new podcast or something like that, That would be my number one piece of advice is just keep it consistent. It's going to take time, but if you keep at it, eventually you're going to draw more and more people. But um, yeah, very humble beginnings, I remember. We don't do the podcast because we want to. And in fact, the the podcast is challenging, but we do the podcast because people have really appreciated it and have asked us to continue to do it. And so I, I think that that's kind of, my desire is I'll continue to do the podcast as long as people are listening to the podcast, as long as people want us uh, to be sharing our thoughts uh, on different different issues going on in culture and 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 what we're up to. But you know, if as soon if that were to dry up, I think the podcast would would come to an end. Yeah, and uh, we've mentioned this before too, but we do appreciate our listeners and now our viewers when when you guys send in suggestions hey can you guys uh, address this particular topic or how about you know addressing that 
other topic. Uh, obviously, it, it depends on what we're up to at the time and and our podcast schedule and everything. But we do listen and we do take those into account, and we do appreciate you guys engaging that way. So keep them coming, keep them coming. We really really appreciate you that way. Um, but uh, let let's move on. Uh, there are lots of exciting new things happening lately with Apologetics Canada, and the one that I mean, for those of you who have been following us, I mean, you you couldn't have gone without hearing about this. Andy's new book, Reclaimed: How Jesus <laughs> Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World, just came out. Like as we're recording this, it was released yesterday by Zondervan. And I still remember when we first started with the Human Project kind of a line of material. And at the time, you gave a talk, I think a series of talks to your young adults called Zombie Culture, where you started talking about how we're, we, we're living in a sort of a dehumanized and dehumanizing culture. And at some point, you even went down to the zombie walk in downtown Vancouver, and you were interviewing people with a shirt uh, that looked like a Subway logo, and it says, Eat Flesh. I remember those very vividly. Instead of Subway, Eat Fresh, it said, Zombies, Eat Flesh. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, that was uh, that was so good. Um, and we got a lot of like really interesting response from people there too. But uh, just tell us briefly about how you came to actually start on this topic. Like, what motivated you, inspired you to tackle the issue of, you know, the question of what is human, and how dehumanization works, so on and so forth. Well, it's kind of interesting that you know anybody who reads the book or you've heard about the book i've i've heard from so many that have talked about how relevant the book is to what's going on right now and the interesting aspect about that is that the book you know you would expect that we'd started writing it a couple months ago but the truth is we've been working on it for the last 6 years and so that's that's an interesting part about writing books is that you know you're you're looking to the future going okay what what's what is needed you know, what, what do you need to be speaking into? And I would argue that we, we hit the mark with regards to this book and the topics that, that we have been addressing for a number of, of years, uh, speaking on, on these things. And, and they're incredibly important and relevant right now. So, in, in that sense, I am so thankful for this book. Uh, I'm thankful for the hard work that was put into it because I really do believe that people are going to be blessed by this book. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment, about the ways that God's already using this content that I, that I think is going to be important as we move forward in the the challenges that we're facing culturally. But the the, the inception of, of everything, the, you know, the genesis of how it all began was pretty humble. It, it really began with the thinking series. So, after, you know, we had done the thinking series and spoke at a number of different coffee shops, and in particular, one coffee shop in Port Moody. The thinking series was so popular and had done so well for the coffee shop owner. Like He made a lot of money through the people who were coming that he asked us to do another series right after uh, we had done the thinking series. And I was, you know, busy 
And it's not like you just can just think up a series, you know, on the spot and just keep keep going. It just doesn't work like that. But I did say to him, hey, listen, uh, I will do one more talk. I'll do one more talk. And the idea that I had was that I knew that the zombie walk that takes place in Vancouver regularly, I don't think it takes place anymore, but it, it was uh, very consistent every year. Uh, was was going to be taking place shortly, so I said, "Okay, let's let's do a coffee shop talk, like that coincides with the zombie walk." And I said, "And I'll give a talk called Taming Zombies and Other Evidence for the Soul." And so the idea was, I wanted to have an opportunity with these zombie walkers to talk with them on the subject of what a human is, you know, and do do humans have souls or, you know, really the, the, the juxtaposition that I wanted to chat with them about is what's the difference between a zombie and a human. And so, again, we filled up this coffee shop with people who wanted to talk about that. I, I still remember that. Like I was there because um, I, I actually used to live in Port Moody, just up the hill from that coffee shop there with my mom way years back. So I'm kind of familiar with that area. I've never seen, I'd never seen that coffee shop pack out that much. That coffee shop could probably maybe hold some 20 something people comfortably. If I remember correctly, one evening we counted something close to 50, 60 people. And it was, there was was only standing room there. And it was really interesting because, you know, Port Moody, just a suburb of Vancouver, and this is a very secular place. And yet these questions really resonate with people, right? So, you know, things like what's the meaning of life? Does God exist? Do all religions lead to God? All those kinds of things. And then also the, the question of, well, what is human? Well, why are we so fascinated with zombies? Do we have a soul? And you think these questions to the secular mind are irrelevant, but no, quite to the contrary. If if that response was any indication, these are questions that people are so, so into. They want answers to these questions in one way or another. My favorite part of, of all that was, as you mentioned, it was, so we did that that coffee shop talk. So that was the very first thing we did and how well received that was in the the conversations that we had from that were so, so valuable that we knew we were onto something and we needed to continue with it. And so over the years, we, we kept speaking on the subject and building the content and everything, which would, by the way, would lead into my PhD work because it, it was a book that I read by Nancy Piercy called The Soul of Science that first introduced me to Michael Polanyi and began that journey for me of doctoral research on, on this area that I could I could go much deeper in. And so my desire was on the PhD level to be able to go, you know, as deep as I needed to in this subject, but then on the popular level to be able to write books like Reclaimed that really translates what's going on culturally in a way that people can appreciate and understand. So eventually that's what led to me taking a film crew down to Vancouver and actually participating in the zombie walk. So those things took place at different times. The The first coffee shop on Taming Zombies was, I, I believe it was two years before I actually went down into Vancouver. But for me, I think one of the, my favorite parts, and when I knew that 
this was going to be really important to talk on was when I was interviewing some zombie walkers and I, and I asked them this question. I, I asked them, what is a zombie? And they immediately were able to respond to that question and, you know, give the typical answer of, of how culture would define a zombie. But then I asked them, uh, what is a human? And the, it was just palpable, just this blank stare on these <laughs> zombies, right? And, and they really were dumbfounded. They didn't know what to say uh, about that question. And you could see that the irony was just hitting them, that they had done more, you know, they had spent more time thinking about zombies than they had, you know, about what and who they are. And, and that was... That was the cultural divide that I wanted to speak into. It was, it was that connection point where culture, you know, understood, and this is still the case, you know, Steve, from all the research we've done, culture gets this idea that there's something to not be a human, right? If you remove these different aspects, and particularly what you have is if you just view a person as a physical object. And really, that's what a zombie is. A zombie is something that is just purely physical. It's controlled by purely physical forces. And sure, they may eat flesh or whatever, but by and large, that's the concept. And and this is, you know, some listeners and viewers might find it surprising that zombie is actually something of a trope in the philosophy world when it comes to the mind-body problem, They right? They use examples of zombies to talk about, well, what are we? Like, what what is the difference between mind and body, so on and so forth? So, it actually dovetails right into the question of, well, yeah, what am I? And when I gave my talk on human rights earlier this year at our conference, one of the examples that I used, and I've used this example to talk about this before, but Unit 731, the biochemical research unit of the Imperial Japanese Army during World War II and the kinds of uh, experiments that they did on POWs. But what was really striking was the name by which they called these subjects, right? They called them Maruta which in Japanese literally means a log. And so then, you know, they are not seen as people. It's not Andy or Steve. It's Maruta number such and such. And they were seen as things that could just be carved up and destroyed. And in in fact, I remember reading this uh, testimony book where somebody was saying, yeah, like we had an incinerator there and we noticed that the bodies would always burn up really quickly because there was nothing left in it. Um, And so this is the kind of, um, it has real down-to-earth, immediate, practical implications in terms of like how we look at people, right? Because it's it's a difference between are we going to treat people as people or things? And I think that's what you were really hitting on as you were also getting into the human project and as you were creating this video series. Tell us a little bit more about the the human project, just briefly. like how did that come about? Uh, obviously, it came out of the research that you were doing on zombie culture and things like that. Yeah, because as as I began to look more into zombie culture, and on the one hand, you'll see that in movies and whatnot, how or TV shows, how a zombie is portrayed as this physical object. 
But as you mentioned, Steve, that has philosophical implications and more than just philosophical implications, because as you mentioned, zombies have been used as thought experiments for a, a long time in, in philosophy, you know, to, to help us to, to think through these things. But in psychology, the, you know, especially after World War II, research was just showing that this, this has real world implications that if you dehumanize someone, and in specifically what that means is if you view somebody as an object or an animal, it allows you to do whatever you want. You see that this is always the foundation that leads to things like slavery or genocide, torture, you name it, uh, that, that, that this is how those sorts of things are made possible. And that was one thing in my in, you know, in research that really you know catches you off guard and really caught uh, historians off guard as they would look at things like World War II because they expected that these heinous deeds were done by heinous people. But yet they found that they were done by normal people. And that your worldview, you know, your perspective, how you saw a human directly impacted the way that you treated a human. And so this translated into the human project in that I began to see that culture by and large has identified the problem. And you can see this in the literature that's out there. Dehumanization is identified over and over again as the, as the problem and, and has been incredibly well documented and agreed upon uh, academically across the board. Yet, uh, the, the challenge is, is when you read the literature, there is just no solution that's being offered. And it's staggering. Yeah, and I found it always really ironic that, you know, dehumanization is such a problem, but in some, among some philosophical circles, right, we argue why we are not, right, any different from animals or things, really, because you... Uh, point out in the book that that's how dehumanization works is you either uh, take away the human uniqueness so you equate a human being with an animal or you take away the human nature and equate it to things like you're a stardust for example right and and i found that always intriguing how on the one hand we want to so desperate desperately want to hang on to uh, personhood what it means to be human and things like that but out of the other corner of the mouth we're talking about how we're really no different than animals or things um, but i think most people when they just kind of they they know intuitively right they see that there is value in human beings and they recognize it i find and so i, I find well, it a really interesting tension and i think you're hitting that yeah, they they absolutely find it because after world war ii this is the first thing that's done is we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that's crafted a year after the war. And the desire in crafting this is that what happened in the war wouldn't happen again. Notice that. Like, they, they identified immediately what was going on. Now, the full implications would take years to fully develop because, again, they kind of had this mentality that the Nazis were monsters. But then began to realize, no, they're actually normal people. The, the problem is, is they had a worldview that was dehumanizing. And, and so then it, it leads to these sorts of things. So this is where things get interesting, though, is we're in a crossroads as a culture where 
with the way that the that uh, UDHR begins that humanity has inherent dignity, equality, and inalienable rights now is is under question, and as we'll mention in a moment, has led to some different publications that I've had a, a privilege of being a part of. But these are these are major questions that are going on in our time in a culture that is experiencing a a lot of um, disunity, uh, a culture that is becoming more violent. It, it's it's also a culture that is losing its grips on those foundations that that provided stability. I mean, I don't know about you, Steve, but right now, you know, in, in not just in Canada, I mean, well, I mean, not just in the United States, but in Canada as well, man, as, as the United States heads into this election here in November, uh, thing, things are, are becoming unhinged. You know, people are becoming unhinged. The amount of violence that we're seeing continues to grow. Now, my family's from Portland, Oregon, and the frustration right now over these, you know, last three months of nonstop rioting that continue to escalate in violence is is incredibly frustrating for people. But I I I'm, I firmly believe that we have to understand the mechanics of what's happening at the foundation of all this, or else it will only escalate. And I and as I talk with people from the U.S., they 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 see this. They realize that the potential for violence in November is high. Yeah, and, and I remember uh, seeing, for example, that video, right, that um, that kind of went around social media for a while where there's a mob of Antifa, right, groups that just are shouting at this woman, I think in a restaurant, because she was refusing to, to you know, raise her fist like the rest of them were doing. And so they were, everybody was just coming at her like this close to her face with their fists raised and, and they're yelling at her. Um, yeah, basically, I believe if I understood correctly that if you believe in Black Lives Matter, you know, raise your fists. And clearly this lady wanted to nuance what does that actually mean? You know, and and isn't raising her fists, yeah. And then you've got people, you know, that are these social justice warriors in her face. Uh, and you could imagine if, when you watch a video like that, you can see that violence could erupt at any second in, in that exchange as they no longer were seeing her as a human being. Yeah. Right. And and what was really concerning wasn't even the fact that she did something. It was the fact that she didn't do what they wanted. That's a whole different game, right? Um, and then I saw another video just uh, last night where I think it was actually in Portland. There was a group of people and there's this lady with the bullhorn, right? And talking about how, you know, we don't need cops, right? We can take them out on our own. And then she said, I'm not sad that an effing fascist died tonight, right? And everybody's cheering. I'm just like, wow, you know, the dehumanization that's happening here, all of a sudden, you know, that guy who is, or gal, I don't know who it was, let's just say a guy, right? Who is somebody's son, somebody's father, maybe somebody's friend, somebody's brother is reduced down to a fascist. And when you're a fascist, then there's absolutely zero remorse for your death, right? I mean, what, what happened here? Yeah. And notice what's happening there that 
and I'm seeing this more and more in our culture. That's why this conversation is so important is this person has been reduced to a term and we're seeing this more and more. And I think we have to be careful when you talk about people being on the right or left or you talk about somebody being a fascist or a bigot or, or whatever it is. You need to be careful when you do that because it's so easy to get into this habit of seeing somebody as, a, say, a political party or whatever it is, and you, you just reduce them to a term. And the, the more angry you get at that group will, you, will um, translate into the way that you treat those people, you, you will stop seeing them as people. Now this, now, this is ironic, isn't it? That, you know, the fascist, you know, in fascism is this idea that, um, you know, that you can use violence to, you know, further your own, your own aims. And yeah, here, it's definitely one major element of it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. A major element of just kind of a totalitarian regime, right? That, and, and, and that's by the way, a way that a lot of groups like Antifa or others will operate, right? Is they'll say, uh, and I, I, I love the way that, um, Ben Shapiro put it in one of the, he did this in a PragerU video. And I think it's right. The argument works like this, you know, if it, you know, it's, it's permissible to punch, it's permissible to punch, uh, Nazis, right. And then you're a Nazi. So it's permissible for me to punch you. So then you basically just define, you know, you, you make something permissible and then you just define somebody within those, those parameters that it's permissible for you to be violent, which, which is fascism. And, and so you're doing the very thing that you're condemning, which we've talked about on this show before, is a moral inversion. And this is something that got talked a lot about as World War II erupted, is that this idea of a moral inversion, this was happening in Stalin, Russia, it was happening in communist China. It was, you know, as Mao was taking power, this was happening all over the place with regards to this idea that, hey, listen, the ends justify the means. In our, in our pursuit of, you know, of this just good culture that we're desiring, you know, it's, it's permissible for us to do whatever it takes to actualize that. And then you become the very thing that that you were against in the beginning. Yeah, and I, I find that really ironic about revolutions, right? Because there's a lot of talk of revolution going on right now in the United States and other parts of the world where people are dissatisfied with the way things are currently and they want to get stuff done and they are resorting to violence and they justify themselves, right, uh, in using violence because this is to bring justice to, to the land sort of a thing. But if you actually look at the history of revolutions, it's not a very good thing for you to be doing that because the people who take power after, they are just as bloody, they're just as bad as the ones previous or even worse sometimes, right? And so I don't, I don't think you want to be there. But what I find really fascinating, what you mentioned earlier, Andy, was, well, if you're a Nazi, then it's permissible to punch you. You're a Nazi, and so it's permissible for me to punch you kind of thing, right? And when I think about that, I'm like, well, you're presupposing that it's not okay, it's not permissible to punch some people, right? And I wonder 
Is it just some people or people, period? It's not okay to punch people. I think people will generally think that, right? Nobody's just going to come up to you and punch you for no reason. But as soon as you hold to certain ideologies that you disagree with, that you think is harmful, all of a sudden you become, well, why, why shouldn't I punch you? Because, well, you're a person. You have value. All of a sudden you lose that value as soon as you don't meet that criteria and you become subhuman. Right? And, and I, th- I see dehumanization happening that way. So when people say, well, it, you know, it's okay to punch a Nazi, I'm just like, well, but you, you're assuming you, you, that that is dehumanization. Like, do you see how that works? Is that you generally wouldn't punch somebody at random, but as soon as this somebody meets that condition of holding to a certain ideology, they become subhuman. How is that any different from the Nazis? dehumanizing Jews based on their ethnicity, they're subhuman and therefore they're rats to be exterminated, right? And that, that's exactly how they they justified the extermination of the Jews. They were dangerous to society, just like an infestation of rats and needed to be taken out, needed to be dealt with. Or, you know, which they refer to as the final solution. The final solution to their big problem. Before we continue... A message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I just wanted to let you know that my book, Reclaimed, is now available. If you are willing, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a book review on Amazon and Goodreads. I have received a few comments online challenging the premise of the book that Jesus humanizes. People have posted Bible verses that seem to indicate that he doesn't. So check out the next couple podcasts as Steve and I will be addressing those objections. And now, back to the podcast. And so, um, now your book is out through Zondervan, and that's quite a um, publisher that you published with. I still remember, was it uh, last year in November when we were in San Diego, I think, for the Evangelical Theological Society conference that you sat down with me and Terry and you told me about how you struck up a major like at this book deal with a major publisher um, because the the thinking book the first book that you published it was it was self-published and it did really well um, but you somehow landed this uh, book deal with a major publisher what was that like well for those people who want to write books I mean sometimes you have to make a decision with whether or not you want to self-publish or if you want to go with a publisher. For us, we've done a lot of self-publishing because we do a lot with our our material and get we distribute it in ways that makes it more difficult when you get a publisher. However, for this uh, project, Reclaimed, it was our desire to seek out a publisher as uh, I wanted to, to make sure that this resource was, uh, you know, made available as broadly as possible which I knew that Zondervan would help us with. I mean, that's one challenge when you self-publish is, you know, it's it's way more difficult to get the material out and available on a on a larger, more broad scale. But uh, listen, I want to be real. Uh, you know, publishing is not an easy thing. And the truth is that my first proposal of zombie culture was was denied and that, you know, that that was confusing for some people because they had heard about us working on zombie culture for so long and then stopped hearing about it. 
And and what happened was Zondervan said, listen, we think you're on the right track, but we think zombies isn't a very helpful way if you want to reach a broad you know, group of people, isn't going to be very uh, effective way to, to do that. That you need to you need to speak on something that would be more that would be appealing to a broader demographic. But when you put together these proposals, these proposals tend to be 30, 60 pages. They tend to be really long and they need to include uh, an introduction in two chapters. So we, I wrote an introduction in two chapters for a proposal that didn't get accepted and then had to go back to the drawing board uh, with the same aim in mind, but but taking a different uh, uh, you know, perspective instead of using zombies, uh, using more historical examples and modern examples, which again, you know, we fin- you know, I finished the second proposal and Zondervan came back and said, hey, uh, okay, this is this is on the right track, but we want you to completely reorder this thing. <laughs> and then you have to go through that. It, so it that's one of the reasons why it takes six years. It takes a long time to get the book to the place that the publisher wants it. And then to, uh, especially a, um, a publisher like Zondervan, the, those tend to be harder publishers to get, but they also tend to be much because they tend to be more picky on what they want. And you have to be willing to uh, stay with it and make all these adjustments, which takes time and effort. And especially when you're doing a PhD at the same time, that <laughs> that at times was uh, brutal, to say the least. Excruciating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now with the human project and reclaimed with, you know, with two materials that kind of go hand in hand. Um, we're also working on a kind of a spin-off project, if you will. Uh, whereas with the thinking series, we created the thinking series online course. Now, Apologies Canada is working on creating the human project online course. Um, it's going to be a lot like the thinking series online course where you actually get to, um, you know, write blogs or you know like they do everything online but one of the uh, components that we're including in there is you actually got to talk to people for some of the assignments right and so um, I'm I'm helping Andy put the course together and we talked back and forth about okay how do we want to structure this And, and one of the assignments that that I proposed was hey what if we got the students to go out and just talk to people that they disagree with right and the goal is not to refute that person but just to listen to understand um and then there there will be other assignments where you actually have to go talk to people um and that's in the so that's in the works that's supposed to uh, be ready for the January offering. And um, so we're working towards that right now. I think that there's some important stuff we could say there. For those people, first of all, that are interested in the thinking series, we have been offering for the last, oh man, how many years has it been? Four or five? Yeah, something like that. We've been offering the thinking series online course, which is uh, accredited. So you can get college credit for that. Uh, Steve, um, runs that. He does a fantastic job. I would highly recommend that that class if that's something you're interested in. Uh, Steve, 
Steve will challenge you uh, and and help you to become a better thinker and a better writer in that class. The so now we're going to be offering in January a uh, this class on theological anthropology or the the Human Project class. This will be also college uh, accredited, and this course uh, will again help you to think more deeply on these subjects, to write and research write and research on this, and then to have Steve and I. Uh, looking over your work and giving you giving you feedback. So I'm really excited about this. I think that the way that we're going to structure it as well is that I'll be teaching this in class. And so we will allow those people online to participate in class. So I, the way we, we've got it at the moment is I'll be running in-class stuff and Steve is going to be running the online uh, participants. We'll probably have a, a limited number of people that will allowed to register for that. Of course, always with the, the course credit, we can only uh, allow so many students because it's a, it's a lot of work uh, grading the papers and whatnot. But that should open up for registration in a couple months here. We'll be letting uh, people know about it. So if that's something that you're interested in, uh, that course is going to be available. We've all, we're almost done uh, with uh, creating it online here. And I, I think it's incredible. The the resource, okay, besides like re- the textbooks and whatnot, uh, just the online content that we've been working on and directing people to that Steve particularly has been working on is incredible, is incredible. Yeah, and and I did put in some work to make sure, you know, like when you read the textbook, for example, Andy mentions certain, like, for example, one example is the uh, National Night campaign where Andy mentions that a commercial that Mentos did with the government of Singapore where, you know, people are encouraged to do their civic duty of making babies, that sort of thing. And I thought it would be just great for you to actually see it and see what because in some ways I, I watched that commercial and I go, wow, that just seems super desperate to me. And it's just going to gives you a sense of where, how the governments in different places around the world globally, they are just really mightily struggling with the fact that people just don't want to procreate because their values are changing and so on and so forth. And so those are some of the, just a, a flavor of the kinds of things that you can expect there. Um, yeah, really looking forward to it. Yeah, so so in that way, it enhances the book because you'll see what's being referenced. But then on top of it, um, Steve has done a lot of work to s- seek out interviews and articles that really highlight this material as well and give you you know different vantage points on this material uh, that are going to be made available on that. So again, yeah, uh, I look forward to going through this course. Uh, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, um, we only have a few minutes left here, Andy. But w- was there anything else that you wanted to discuss? Uh, a couple of other things, maybe or not, um, doesn't matter. But yeah, well, given that this is a uh, a podcast, th- just to give you a status update as to where things are at, I know that some people have asked, you know, you know what 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 material is out there? What have we been doing? And particularly some of the other stuff I've been working on, people have asked, you know, what's going on with that? So let me just give you a quick status update. Uh, one project that we worked on is a book called Everyday Apologetics. Uh, I'm, I participated in two chapters in that book. That book is available. And 
would recommend it to you. It has a number of great contributors, and I was happy to be a part of that. Uh, Paul Chamberlain and Chris Price uh, edited that work, and, and it's, a, it's a great book. So, Everyday Apologetics, if you're interested in that. Uh, a number of people asked me about my um, article that I wrote for the, for the UN, specifically who this is being uh, published with with the UN is the United Nations Interregional Crime and Justice Research Institute. And the article is called, Will Pedobots Lead to Less Harm? The Dangers in Creating Artificial Dignity and Guidelines to Protect Children. So with regards to that work, uh, I have yet to hear back. Uh, that one was going through a double-blind peer review, so that's going to be uh, a while. But we'll keep you updated uh, as to the status of, of that article. If you remember, with regards to uh, the presentation I gave at Cambridge University and the World Congress in Philosophy of Law, that presentation I gave it has been published into a chapter in a book. The book is called The Inherence of human dignity. Uh, and there's volume one and volume two. My chapter is in volume one. So again, the, the chapter, the book is called The Inheritance of Human Dignity, volume one, Foundations of Human Dignity. And the article that I wrote is called Artificial Dignity, The Humanizing and Dehumanizing Implications of Polanyi versus Turing's Ontology. Uh, lastly, just Two other things that are developing, one that has developed straight out of those projects, in particular the UN and, and that um, the, the Cambridge paper and, and whatnot, is a, uh, a group called uh, Law and Humanity, in which we have been networking with lawyers from across Canada that uh, that we're that we're working together with if you are a lawyer uh, or you're a law student we just we'd love to connect with you we'd encourage you to uh, send us an email and once covid you know allows us to start meeting uh, we're gonna have our first meeting uh, with that law group as we begin to network together and work on projects together. So we're looking forward to seeing that come together. Yeah. So if you want to email us about that, you can direct that email to info at apologeticscanada.com and just reference Law and Humanity Network. And uh, we'll we'll get back to you and see what we can figure out logistically as we're dealing with COVID stuff right now. So we'll probably have to wait until it blows over, but it would be great to hear from you beforehand so we know who to expect. And then lastly, one of the really exciting projects that we have developing is over the next number of months, I'll be speaking with uh, teachers and principals across Canada as we're working to create curriculum that can be used not just here in British Columbia, but you know, across Canada and globally to help students have these conversations and the teaching that that is in this book reclaimed specifically around what does it mean to be a human being? Again, we understand the dehumanizing problem. And in fact, this is really well illustrated with what's going on in British Columbia right now, where in grade 11, 12, it is now genocide studies is now a mandatory part of our school curriculum. But the problem is, again, it's just highlighting that dehumanization is a problem. And we all understand that. 
But we need to understand the solution. We need to understand the humanizing solution, which I specifically argue for uh, from the from the Christian perspective, and specifically Jesus. And so uh, that's being identified, and and Christian schools are. Uh, desiring to be taught and how to have that conversation, but also the need for this curriculum. And so, uh, we're partnering with uh, ACSI, and this is an accrediting body. And Lord willing, over the next while here, it's going to take some time to develop, but a curriculum is going to come together that they want to make available globally to help Schools teach this material from elementary, middle to high school. And so, really, it's going to be available given the work we're doing for college students. It'll be available from middle school all the way through college level, helping people to understand this issue and to be able to speak to it from a Christian perspective. And again, given all that's going on in our world today, uh, I am, I am just so thankful to be participating in this and to be able to help make this available because I really do believe that us educating our children in this conversation is going to have a real world impact, an important impact in their lives and in ours. Yeah, what a blessing it is. Hey, and we've talked about this really briefly before, but for you to be doing your PhD work in something that is so relevant because we've you've seen people sometimes people joke about that right I've got my PhD in you know certain theoretical physics you know like this is some really I don't know um, obscure niche sort of thing obscure thing that you would never hear any in everyday conversation but what you're studying touches on everything because it touches on the humanity right and and that that is us and what can be more relevant than talking about us what we are and so um yeah that that's really exciting what everything that's going on hey i I think it's time to wrap up here um i hope you enjoyed the status update I, i know it's a little we're a little behind but this was meant to be sort of a hey we've hit the 300th episode milestone kind of a status update so uh, please if you are a Christian listening to this do keep us in your prayers Uh, and we would really appreciate the support that you give to us either in prayer or financially we are a nonprofit organization we depend on support from people like you and so in whatever amount that you can support us we would really appreciate that thank you for joining us for this episode of the AC podcast the AC podcast is a ministry of apologetics canada and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about Mm -hmm.